Welcome along to the first 20-minute topic podcast of 2020 with me, Marcus Stead and Greg Lance Watkins. The assassination, for that is what it was, of Iranian General Qasim Soleimani was a major escalation in tensions between what we call the West and the Middle East. We are now in very dangerous territory and the situation could spiral out of control all too quickly. Greg, we haven't got time for a full history lesson about the fascinating history of the region and the Persian race and the state in, in as a whole, but I think we need to put what's going on at the moment into a little bit of historical context. In 1953, there was a power struggle between uh, the monarch Mohammad Reza Shah and Prime Minister Mohammad Madega, and the US CIA and the secret intelligence MI6 in the UK orchestrated a coup against Madega's government. And then years later, Shah dismissed the parliament and launched the White Revolution, which was an aggressive modernization program. There was significant economic growth in the years that followed, but that wealth was concentrated among a very small number of people. Um, And it was becoming an increasingly secular country, by which we mean non-Islamic, increasingly non-Islamic in character. And um, the Ayatollah Khomeini was exiled in Paris, I think it was. And then there there was an uprising towards the end of the 1970s. And in 1979, the Islamic Revolution took place. Uh, Islamic revolutionaries opposed the Western secular policies of the Shah. And supporters of Ayatollah Khomeini organized protests in opposition to the government of the Shah. Khomeini returned to Iran. He became the new leader of Iran. Uh, 98.2% of Iranian voters said yes in a referendum for the creation of the Islamic Republic of Iran under the leadership of Khomeini, although there was a political government underneath him and there's always been a tension in the years since between the religious rulers and the political rulers in the country. Then there was the the Iran-Iraq war that ended in 1988 with neither side having gained anything, uh, a loss of huge loss of human life on both sides. And that really is what we need to know in terms of background. Your experiences, you've never lived in Iran, you've worked with Iranians, but you've got experience of the region, haven't you? Indeed. I started out young in those terms. I believe I was the first ever white child to live in Bahrain. Mm. That would have been about 19. 19, end of 1949-50 and I've travelled round the Gulf I can remember it as a child I can remember it later in life when I've been back to the Gulf I had a uh, couple of uncles lived in Bahrain until well into the 60s so yeah I've had an, something of an affinity with uh, the region over a number of years a couple of quick comments on the history of Iran. Iran was is no peasant state, as people uh, tend to think of it. Um, these aren't camel-kicking Arabs living in the desert in tents. It is a very wealthy, very sophisticated society. It always has been, and I say always, we're going, uh, this is Persia, uh, and out of Persia came Iran, Uh, It is the seat of the peacock throne where trunks of jewels were either side of the king's throne and he would hand out fists full of jewels um, to people as 
libations, uh, rewards, or just because he felt like it. And the wealth was quite staggering. And it was a fairly peaceful country. It was has been Muslim for since the days of Mohammed, but it has been Muslim light up until uh, the the Shah was taken out of Iran to uh, with his sister uh, to America, where he somewhat vanished and died quite shortly afterwards. Yeah, he died in 1980, but I'm very glad you said what you just did about the nature of Iranian society, because that is consistent with my own experiences. I have never been there. I don't have any experiences of the region, but what I do have is a number of people who I'm proud to call friends of mine in the Iranian sporting fraternity. And my experience of Iranian people, not government now, but ordinary people, is overwhelmingly positive. I find them intelligent, I find them sophisticated, well-mannered, welcoming, interested in the wider world, and they have a great knowledge of us and our societies. Uh, I've had conversations about um, sports teams in this country and film culture and everything else. These are intelligent, sophisticated, outward-looking people. This is an educated society. One thing that I'd add to that is I understand there are more, contrary to western belief there are more women in university in iran than there are in britain that might well be true and this is one of it the is things not as aggressive as it seems well the big thing that does the round on social media is people putting pictures up of this was women before the revolution in 1979 and this is them afterwards and they put a picture of the ones from black and white photos of before 1979 of women without headgear on and after 1979 uh, wearing a hijab which is compulsory in public places but i can tell you i have known Amer- uh, sorry iranian women and i've conversed with them and they, yes, they wear their hijab, but they are very bright and they are very well educated. There are opportunities for women to get on in Iran. So I would say don't let the cliches cloud your judgment on this, guys, because this is a country full of educated people, uh, overwhelmingly young population, very cultured people. There has been a tension f- since the Iranian revolution between the, the Ayatollah and the religious leaders and the elected government of the day. And the most probably the best known uh, political leader elected in that period uh, was Ahmadinejad from about the mid 2000s up until about seven or eight years ago. And as was one person who understands the region better than me said to me at the time, he said, um, my honest opinion of Ahmadinejad is he said he talks a lot of sense, but he does it in a very crude sort of way. Um, and, and that was what rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way at the time. Rouhani, I would have said he is who pretty much who he says he is. And I, I saw, particularly in the Obama years and when John Kerry was Secretary of State, efforts were made to improve relations. I'm trying to work out this action now with this um, assassination of, how do we pronounce the guy's name? You know it better than I do. Well, I have always understood and I've been aware of him for many years now, uh, Kasim Suleiman. Yeah, because I've um, heard it pronounced at least four different ways on broadcast outlets. They're, they're now putting an eye on the end, which I, I found, find strange. Um, Kasim Suleiman, uh, let's not forget, uh, joined the effectively the Republican Guard as a young man and rose through the Republican Guard and is now, or should I say was, the 
a major general and of the Kuds, which is the elite or special services sector of uh, the Republican Guard and responsible for various militias throughout the Middle East that have been propping up this regime or that regime. It was he who was behind close ties with Hezbollah, particularly in the Lebanon, and also um, across Syria during the recent wars. He has been very much in a position where uh, he has supported the governance of Syria and... By which we mean Assad? Assad. Yes. um, The actual, uh, supposedly official governance, Assad. And he also, and this is a thing not to overlook, uh, was involved with the equivalent uh, of Hezbollah, the Popular Mobilization Force, or PMF, in Iraq. And one of the individuals was the leader of that force in Iraq, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. And he's been killed as well. Uh, was in the convoy with Suleiman mm. and was also killed. But also don't forget, um, there were further four or five senior ranking individuals who were also killed. There were, I believe it was seven notable individuals Mm. who were killed in total. So this has sent a very big shockwave through the Middle East. Yeah, and Um, I I have... What worries me most of all is not so much that it sent a big shockwave through the Middle East, but that we have seen large numbers of people who had uh, done almost anything that they possibly could to leave the austerity and rigid controls and many appalling aspects of Islam behind them in the Middle East, such as uh, the stoning to death of women uh, for basically misdemeanors, and the beheading of women and the killing by strangulation, hanging from uh, the gibbet of cranes or throwing off the roofs for people declared as homosexual. And I say declared, all you have to do is tell people that somebody's homosexual. There's no proper trial of it. Uh, They're just summarily executed. And the general barbarism of certain aspects of Uh, Islam, they have um, left that behind them and come to Britain, Uh, yet when these obviously aggressive sectors of that Islamic extremism are treated as terrorists, since uh, Suleiman, for instance, is probably uh, personally responsible for several thousand allied deaths across the region um, over the last 30 years. Yet they celebrate, they are wailing about it and um, in Britain, particularly in London, if they're so much disturbed by it, why don't we put them on plane and send them home? Well, hang on now. 
It's very well saying that and everything you've listed there, the distasteful things that are going on with human rights abuse is all very well and true. But it's not that different to what's going on in Saudi Arabia right now. Everything you've just described about the stoning of women and the executions and everything else, exactly the same thing is going on in Saudi right now, even crucifixions in Saudi, and yet they are our ally. I would go even further than that. There isn't, basically, there isn't a country in the Middle East that isn't in breach of what we understand to be human rights. Uh, indeed, yes. But it's, it's astonishing that I, I think what's going on here is, look, I don't believe for a second that, well, certainly not until this point, that Iran had any intention of attacking this country. There was no reason for them to do so. But at the same time, is this some sort of a favour that Trump is doing to his friends in Saudi Arabia? Oh, by the way, why don't we hear about Saudi intervention in Yemen, hardly ever reported on the national news in this country? What on earth is well, that I think all we about? can go further than that. I think we can go further than that in that I'm not sure that Trump is particularly aware of the actual chemistry of the Middle East whatsoever in any aspect. Well, all right, all right, you might well be right. You might well be right. You might well be right on that. But in that case, why did he go for this assassination? Because that's what it is. And why did he do it now? And I also don't think we need to overlook the serious precedent that has been set here in that a state has used an assassination as a political tool. And that in itself is very, very dangerous, I think. Why do you think Trump did what he did at this time? I can give you two very good reasons. He's moving into an election year uh, where he has to raise his profile to be certain of winning. And he is also moving within a month or so towards impeachment trial, Mm. uh, which he needs to get off of the headlines. I think a great deal of what has happened could well be attributable to that. I would also add that it's all very well taking the so-called moral high ground of Saudi being an ally of Britain and America. It would be very hard to explain to the many thousands of jobs both in this country and in America, that would grind to a shuddering halt instantly if we were not supplying and the weapons being supplied were being supplied by the French, who would indubitably step in, or the Russians. The weapons would still be getting into the battlefields of the Gulf. Uh, One of the very big things to remember of this whole Gulf problem is that Iraq, sorry, Iran controls the Straits of Hormuz and can stop stone dead any oil coming out of the Gulf. Yeah, but you've got to remember that what we've seen from the Saudis, what what we've seen from the Saudis in the last few years is an escalation of things like the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi in the Turkish embassy, where his body parts were taken out of the building in what looked like cake boxes, it seemed. This is the sort of thing that's going on. And we've got to be very careful that, okay, yes, foreign policy is a murky business and we are walking a tightrope between trying to have at least some moral integrity and the, the sort of realities that you outlined in your response there. But it does seem to me as though Trump is doing what he's doing partly as a favour to the Saudis on top of the two examples you just gave of it being an election year and his impeachment coming up. But this needs to be put into a wider context now. and We're coming towards the end of our time. But... It's much easier to get into a conflict 
than it is to get out of one. And I say that in a way that World War I began as a regional conflict. This situation and this action of using an assassination as a political tool could escalate very, very quickly. And I think we're in very dangerous territory right now. I really do. The best possible outcome, and um, I've said it earlier in broadcast form, would be that the three Katushas, and they are believed to have been Katusha rockets, that were fired into the American-used airport, two of them, and one into a green zone uh, near the American embassy. If Iran had had the wisdom, and not just wisdom, courage to have fired three Katusha rockets without warheads just to show that they could and then stood back, that would have been the best outcome for both the Western world, for the Gulf itself, and for Iran, because it would have shown that they are not just a terrorist rabble. And do you think, therefore, that to end pretty much where we began on this, that America is underestimating Iran, because I think they are. I think they're underestimating Iran's wealth. I think they're underestimating the intelligence of the people who are a sophisticated, educated people. And they have a leadership who know what they're doing. And I, I think, I fear, actually, and I don't use that word lightly, I fear America is starting to get involved in something and has taken dangerous action and there could be knock-on effects like a row of dominoes, and this could escalate very, very quickly. That's what I fear right now. One of the problems America has is America exports very, very little around the world. What it does depend on for world travel is franchise of its various operations, be that Ford, be that Caterpillar Tractor, be that Boeing, etc. And it also as an economy, is dependent on being the reserve currency of choice for the world. And it was the fact that the reserve currency of choice status was under threat from Saddam Hussein and Iraq uh, that led to the First and Second Gulf War, nothing to do with oil whatsoever. And it was the threat to the reserve currency of choice American dollar status uh, that led to the murder of Muammar Gaddafi and the vilification of Libya. And it has been behind an awful lot of very dubious foreign policy uh, right across the Middle East and North Africa. Um, the Arab Spring, which never realistically happened. It was a construct of uh, black ops out of um, the USA in the main. It's a difficult situation. It's not one that's going to resolve in a hurry. And America will find it a very... America would win on pure might, but it could lead to a much worse situation. You may recall that when Iran seized the American uh, embassy some years ago, uh, behind them was Russia, uh, said that if America took a move against Iran, Russia would step in. We've seen the chaotic situation uh, in the Middle East with Turkey, Syria, etc., as a result of the 
Russians stepping in there. It is a more volatile area than um, I believe America can understand. My thanks as always to Greg and my thanks to you for listening. Serious stuff, isn't it? Who knows where we'll be by this time next week, but um, do join us for another 20-minute topic then. In the meantime, a very happy new year to you, wherever in the world you may be. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>